Hey man, it's great to see y'all today. We're right kind of in the middle of Christmas. That's a great place to be in the middle of. And if you're a guest, we're so glad you're here. Once you know as a guest, you're always welcome to anything we have going on uh, today at 4 and 6 o'clock. Um, if, if you're new to our church, you're going to know our church very well. We have an 8.30 traditional service, has a choir. And, uh, and so today at 4 and 6, we're having this beautiful musical uh, performed by our choir. Many of the folks who were part of our contemporary services sing as well, some of the people in our band. And so it's a fantastic thing. Uh, so you're invited to come at 4 and uh, 6 o'clock. We love Christmas. We celebrate Christmas. And Christmas is just a great time as you end the year to just remember the things that really matter especially to our faith. And one of the things I shared last week, and, and I've shared with you many times, if you're, if you're going to understand that book we call the Bible, beautiful book, word of God given to us, to understand the scriptures, this is going to help you get it. And it makes a huge difference in terms of getting it if you understand this, that that Old Testament is, is a work that promises something to us. If you read the Old Testament, there's a promise. And what you realize then is when you read the New Testament, it fulfills that promise. And what the Old Testament promises us is that someone is coming. Someone is coming to save us. And that really is the theme of our series in December. He is coming. He is coming. And I began the series last week sharing something with you that I want you to get out of the series. And I want to share it again with you. And here's the thing that I want you to see. The Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, point to someone, a Messiah, who is God's way to save us. Jesus is that Messiah, and he fulfills and completes all that God promised for our salvation. God promises something, and the fulfillment of that promise is Jesus. Last week, as we began by sharing that he's coming from Egypt. And in this series, we're looking at the book of Matthew, those first two chapters, taking things kind of in reverse order in Matthew, and seeing how Matthew helps us to understand the promise made in the Old Testament is being fulfilled. And we saw the promise of him coming out of Egypt in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, 14, and 15 as fulfilling what was promised in Hosea 11 to 1. Today, uh, we come to the beginning of the second chapter of Matthew in uh, verses 1 through 6, looking back at Micah 5, 2, seeing how this promise is made and fulfilled. He is coming from Bethlehem. The Messiah has to come, must come from a little bitty town called Bethlehem. And here's the thing today in the message that I want you to see, that the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem is a reminder that God has always revealed to us who he is, and what he does. Understand, God reveals, he makes known to us throughout the pages of both the old and the new, who he is and what he does. So the message today, we begin with the two things I really want to share with you. The beginning with the first one, we're going to talk about magi, myths, miracles, and mystery. We're in the story of the Magi. And the only place in all of the New Testament, in all of the Bible period, you really read about Magi is in just 12 verses in Matthew chapter 2. Some think that because they're somewhat different and because this is kind of a strange kind of just placement into the birth narratives, that this is nothing but a made-up account of a myth of sorts. 
But the truth is, is that the, the story of the Manchai, historical events, they fit perfectly well within the story of Matthew and the entire birth narrative. Now, the problem is that sometimes within the church, we've made stuff up about the Magi. For instance, we will say that they're kings, and they're not kings. Uh, they're wise men. We'll say that there are three of them. And there's nothing in the New Testament, there's nothing in those 12 verses to make us think there's three of them, except there were three gifts given, gold, incense, and myrrh. But it has nothing to do with the number of wise men. Some have made up the fact that the wise men represent the three tribes of Noah, the three sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. There's nothing to that in the New Testament. There's no reason to think that. Some even give them names. You know, the giving of names to the wise men, totally made up. There's nothing there. So some things we kind of make up, and we'll clarify the wise men in a little bit. For some, the, the story of the Manchai is, is really about the miraculous. They see the miraculous work of the star. And for some people, the star is everything about the story, and they spend all their time trying to focus on understanding everything about the star. And what I would share with you is that while it's important, it's really a minor part of the story. But I would suggest to you that the story of the Manchai is really a story of the mysterious. There is something mysterious about these guys. They come out of nowhere, they burst under the scene, then they leave and never come back. But the story of the Manchai are there to answer two questions. And we look at these guys and those two questions we ask about them, which will help us understand Jesus is who these guys were. Who are these guys? And why did they come? Who are the Magi? And why in the world did they come? For that answer, we're going to do what we did last week. We're going to go back to the 8th century B.C. Now, I'm not going to spend anywhere near the amount of time setting up what happened in the 8th century as I did last week. So if you didn't get all that, go back to last week's message. It's there. But in the 8th century... You have the world being dominated by the Assyrian Empire. And in the 8th century, in 722, the Assyrians completely destroyed and wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. They're called Ephraim, or, or sometimes just called Israel. The southern kingdom, Judah, still existed, but it was kind of a weak vassal in a weak kingdom who was subject ultimately to the Assyrians. And during the period of the 8th century BC, the 700s, there are four guys who wrote books that we have in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, and Amos. Two of those guys wrote mostly to the northern kingdom, Hosea and Amos. We saw Hosea last week, and two wrote to the southern kingdom, Isaiah and Micah. Three of those guys in their books wrote something that Matthew tells us pertains to Jesus. It's prophetic. Now, what I shared with you last week is don't get caught up in prophecy always being predictive. In fact, I shared with you that most of what we see in the Old Testament that is prophetic is not predicting the future. It doesn't mean that some passages aren't. In fact, the passage we come to today kind of is. We need to understand that by saying that if you don't repent, that the judgment of God is coming is mainly a preaching to God's word. It's not so much a prediction of what will happen. It's the assurance God is working. The idea that the Old Testament prophets predict things that will happen hundreds of years later isn't all that common, and you need to get that. Now, Micah happens to do that. And the thing about Micah that's important, as you wrote at the very, very end of the 8th century, moving into the 7th century, and he wrote about the fact that Judah was being unfaithful, and if they weren't careful, they were going to be taken over by another group, that someone would come and conquer them. And in the fifth chapter, he shares about those who come in to conquer. Some think the fifth chapter pertains to the Assyrians. Some think it may, may, may pertain to the Babylonians later on, or maybe both. It really doesn't matter for our purposes, but what's important as our purposes is he gives a message of hope. And so Micah 5, verse 2, you see that hope. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be 
ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Micah says, in the midst of being captured, in the midst of going and being defeated, there is hope in one who is going to come from the little bitty, bitty town, the clan in Bethlehem. And he will rule them. And he says the rule is from long ago, from says of the, almost of the eternity. Some think that this means that the rule is, is, is predicted and before the, the coming or the creation of the world. It goes back that far into all eternity. Some think it goes back to David. It really doesn't matter. What matters to us is the prediction of a ruler. Because the reality is no one ever came and delivered them. And since no one ever came and delivered them, how in the world is this going to be fulfilled? And the understanding was, by the time of Christ, it was going to be fulfilled by Messiah. Just about everyone understood it that way. In fact, I will share this with you. All the ancient Jewish interpreters regarded the ruler as the Messiah. By the time of Jesus, everybody who was connected with the Jewish faith, all of the scribes, all of the Pharisees, all the religious leaders, understood that Micah 5.2 pertained to the Messiah. Which brings us now to the New Testament. Both Matthew and Luke tell us something important. That Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Luke tells us how he got there. And Matthew tells us something of what happened. And in Matthew chapter 2 verse 1. We pick up in the middle of the story of Jesus. But the beginning of a new part of it. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. In the days of Herod the king. Manshai from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus had already been born. So the idea that the, the Magi showed up the night of the birth didn't come. He, he'd been born a while. It says it was during the time of Herod, who was the king uh, of Israel at, at that time. Now, Herod became king in about 40 BC, ruled till about 4 BC. He died four years before the birth of Christ. It's always fascinating that Jesus was born before he was born, you know, in BC, but that's because of the calendaring system got messed up. But Herod was, was not the king like David would have been king. He wasn't the sovereign. At that time, Israel was dominated by Rome. And so as a king, he had some degree of freedom, but he answered to Rome. Evidence of Rome's presence was everywhere. He served at the pleasure of Caesar Augustus. Now, he was a great builder. He built roads and aqueducts and structures. He rebuilt the temple. It was magnificent, but he was an extremely cruel man. Few have ever been as cruel as Herod. He destroyed anyone he thought might somehow be a threat to him and his rule. He, he would kill his wives. He would kill his sons. He would kill his mother-in-law. He would kill relatives. He killed anybody, high priests. He killed anybody. In fact, Caesar Augustus, if you understand that the word for son and the word for pig in the Greek are, are almost the same, very similar, he said it's safer to be Herod's pig than his son. He was so cruel. It was during his time. And we are told that Magi, came from the east. Now, magi are very mysterious. Obviously, it's connected to the word magician. They weren't magicians as such. But we need to understand something about the magi. Most likely, uh, and, and there's lots of different opinions, but the best understanding of the magi appears to be that they had come from Persia. Now, the Persians had their own kingdom. The Roman Empire wasn't the only empire and kingdom that existed. The Persians had one, too. It was not as powerful or as large, but they had one. And most likely, the Magi could be traced all the way back to some degree to the Old Testament times, about the time of Daniel. 
We know that when Jerusalem was destroyed in 587, the Babylonians took Daniel and others back with them to the area of where they ruled, and they made them advisors. They made them scholars. When the Persians defeated the Babylonians, they kept these men as scholars. And Daniel, he transitioned from Babylon to the kingdom of Persia as a scholar, as a wise man, as someone who would educate them over the hundreds of years that followed. All these different wise men that they had developed into a pretty formidable group, and their primary task was to advise the kings of Persia and to educate all the royalty. And so they were experts in astronomy and the study of the stars. They were experts in math for that day, philosophy, and the different religions. And evidently, some of them were still followers, or still at least in sympathy with the religion of the Jews of the worship of one God. And while they were Gentiles, somehow they were practicing the worship of just one God, Yahweh. And they were looking forward with the limited information they had and the knowledge that someday someone would come from the Jews to be the deliverer. Now, what these Magi were is they were the ones who educated the kings and the princes and all the royalty. They were kingmakers. That's what they did, is they helped prepare and make and then advise the king. At some point, they made a trip to Jerusalem. Now, we like to picture just three old guys on camels, you know? Just three guys, three camels, loaded down with thousands and thousands of dollars worth of stuff that they're going to make a hundreds of mile journey over many months, and no one's going to rob and kill them. That's a pretty good imagination of that. The truth of the matter is, there's reason to understand that of the Manchai, there would be more than three. They're probably in a given group of a clan of Manchai, of ones that worship God, probably 12 to 20. They were wealthy men. They had servants. Wealthy men back then had servants. I mean, and, and they traveled with them. They would take care of the tents and everything else. And because they were of the royal entourage, because they had come from the king of Persia, they had a bodyguard of the finest soldiers you can imagine. About 60 men made this trip. And they made the trip to Jerusalem because that's where they thought they needed to go. And when they got there, verse 2 tells us this. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. They came to King Herod. Now, you got to understand this. King Herod wasn't a king like the king of the Persians. The king of the Persians was the equivalent of the emperor of Rome. They would look at Herod as being basically a lesser vassal. So they were coming from a much more prominent and powerful man. So they had come to this king. And looking at him and questioning him, they wanted to know where the king was to be born. Because they understood that Herod, not fully Jewish, he was an enemy and he was from also the area of the Edomites, the tribe from the descendant of Esau, was not a legitimate true king. And so they wanted to know, where was this, the king of the Jews? They saw the star in the east. Now, his star in the east, literally it means his star in the rising. We sometimes assume and think that the star appeared and just kind of went before them. And these three guys on camels followed this star hundreds of miles. Star of wonder, star bright, we just followed you. But really what it means is there was an appearance of something of this star. And there's a lot of speculation what the star was. Some, and beyond, I'm going to tell you, it doesn't matter what it was. For, the, for this story, it makes no difference. Some think that it was a comet. Some think it was um, Jupiter and Saturn converging. Uh, some think it may have been a nova. Maybe it was a shooting star. And many think it's just some special thing God created. It really doesn't matter. When they saw this unique sign in the heavens, 
they understood and believed that God was revealing to them a king had been born, the king of the Jews. So they came. Where is he to be born? We have come, and notice, to worship him. Let me tell you what Magi did. They educated kings. They developed kings. They advised kings. They never worshiped kings. You worship deity. To worship is to take your nose, put it on the ground before, and to honor. Now, they would honor kings. They would pay homage to kings. But they didn't worship kings. For them to say, we have come to worship someone beyond anything Herod could be is significant. They understood there was one who was out there more than they could imagine. Verse 3 tells us this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled or disturbed, and so was Jerusalem with him. Which doesn't mean they were disturbed at that moment, but at some point, all of this would be a disruptive force to the people then. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So the, the scribes and the chief priests, there's some debate exactly what it means, but it probably means something like this. The, the priests would have been those who would have been connected to the Sadducees and would have been related to the worshiping part of Israel. These were the guys who understood the worship. The scribes, probably connected to some degree to the Pharisees, understood the law and the interpretation. He got the people who understood worship and understood the scriptures and said, where is he going to be born? Who is the Messiah? He knew, Herod, that he wasn't the Messiah. But now he was concerned that maybe the Messiah was to be born, you would think. If the Messiah might be born, the Savior, you might be one to go and worship. But here in verse 5 is what they said to him. In Bethlehem of Judea, this is what has been written by the prophets. So they understood and knew where the Messiah was to be born. Because Micah 5, 2, was a messianic passage. And so in verse 6, they quote Micah 5, 2. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people. Now, this is a rather free-flowing translation of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And sometimes it concerns people when you come to the New Testament, and the guys who wrote the New Testament were a little loose in their translation of the Old Testament, trying to figure out how it happened. Let me share this with you. Many times I quote scripture from you while I'm up here. And a lot of times I give you a rather free translation. I'm not always overly concerned with whether or not I get it word for word. Sometimes I mix a couple of different translations in, or I think about the Greek text, but I give you basically what the text says, and that's really what happened. He, they even added a part there in Micah 5, 2, Matthew did, about he, he will shepherd the people, because in verse Matthew, Micah 5, 2, there's nothing there about shepherding. Micah 5, 4, there is, and so maybe they kind of borrow from that, but the idea basically is this. First of all, what they're saying and what Matthew was telling us is that at the birth of Jesus, the Messianic promise had been fulfilled. The promise of a Messiah coming had happened. Now, you realize that the Jews all believed that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. That's a huge tribe of people. A lot of people claim Judah. They, they believed that, that he would probably be a descendant of David. Well, that's still a large number of people. But what had to happen, the secret to it, is he had to come and be born in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is just a little bitty old place. It's like, it's like saying that the, the next governor of New Mexico had to be born in Mesquite or Avada or something. It's just a, a real small selection of people. It's amazing that many folks had, had, uh, would name their kids Jesus, and many folks would pray that their child would be the Messiah, ignoring the fact that unless they had born that child in Bethlehem, that couldn't happen. So Matthew's saying this, this is the fulfillment. The other thing that 
is important. The second thing is that he was the ruler. He was the king. He was the one that was going to oversee all that would happen. And he would lead them and guide them. And the thirdly, he was the shepherd, the one to prepare and take care of the people. This, Matthew says, is Jesus. This is the one who has fulfilled the promise. Remember what I told you last week with Matthew and the other New Testament writers. When they looked at their scriptures and they saw this pertaining to Israel, they saw Jesus is fulfilling all of that promise to Israel. In fact, they saw it that way because Jesus said that. In Matthew 5, 17, he records Jesus as saying, do not think that I've come to do away with the law and the prophets or all the scriptures, in other words, but I have come to fulfill them. Jesus said, I have come to fulfill everything. And that's what Matthew says he is doing. I said at the beginning of the particular point, when it comes to the Magi, the question is who and why. So here's the answer. Who were the Magi? They were kingmakers. And why did they come to worship a king? And that's it. They, these guys were kingmakers. And yet they had come not to make a king, to worship a king. Which brings me then to the second thing I want to share with you today. And I want to talk about why this all matters. In both the biblical accounts, the New Testament accounts of the birth of Jesus, you have Luke and Matthew writing. And they both tell us something extremely important. In Luke's account, chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, he has the angels appearing to the shepherds saying, do not be afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy. For today in the city of David has been born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, a Savior has been born in Matthew chapter 1. When the angel comes to Joseph, in verse 21, he says, Name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, ultimately, what the Christmas story is about is a Savior. Christianity, as I've shared with you numerous times, has four great pillars of our faith, the things that distinguish us. Two of them come from the Old Testament, and we share it with Judaism. Found in Genesis 1.1, we see that God is the one who creates and reveals. We have revelation, God revealing himself, and God creating. In the New Testament, we have two more great pillars. They have to do with the incarnation or the nature of Jesus, which I'll talk about more next week when I deal with Matthew chapter 1. But it has to do with the incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas, and the resurrection, which we celebrate at Easter. Those two pillars are so critical that almost everything or everyone or, or any kind of philosophy or group that attacks Christianity attacks either resurrection or reincarnation, the birth of Jesus. And there are a lot of things out there. I, this time of year, I hear so much stuff. And, and most of what I hear, people attacking the Christmas story, doesn't really matter. For instance, I'll hear people say, well, you know, Jesus probably wasn't born in December. It doesn't matter. Neither Luke nor Matthew tell us he was born in December. The earliest church fathers understood he was born in December. I will share this with you, though, that after doing a ton of research over my career and my ministry, the best evidence for when Jesus was born is December, but it's not necessary. Some say that you know, Jesus, and it was, they, they worshipped him, and you know, they celebrated Christmas because they stole from the pagans the worship of Saturnalia. Well, first of all, there's no evidence to that. Let me, let me just share this with you about when people tell you that Christianity stole something from here or stole something from the pagans. Christians would never take anything from paganism. 
Early Christianity had at its heart Jews who despised paganism and people who left paganism, and they're not going back. So there's no evidence of that. In fact, whenever someone tells you that Christianity did this or that, or you can prove, they can prove something about the resurrection or something about the birth of Jesus, just ask them one simple question. Please show me the evidence. I would like to see that. Because here's what I'll tell you. There's no evidence for any of this. There's speculation. There is inferences. There's even reading back into Scripture what they wanted to say. But there's never any evidence. You see, what we have from Matthew and Luke is two pretty strong accounts that are similar yet different of the birth of Jesus. I mean, both tell us that angels appeared. Luke says to Mary. Matthew says to Joseph. Both tell us the Holy Spirit was involved. Both tell us he was born in Bethlehem. And both say there was worship. Shepherds worship in Luke. Magi worship in Matthew. What you have, basically, is this. Written close together, Matthew and Luke neither collaborate or conflict with one another. Written close together, Matthew and Luke, they don't collaborate. They didn't sit down and say, hey, let's write a couple of different accounts and see why one part I'll write the other, nor do they conflict with each other. This is important because you need to have confidence in what is written about the birth of Jesus. With that in mind, as we come to this beautiful passage, let me share with you three critical truths that we are taught by the Magi. First is that God reveals himself to us. God is a revealing God. He revealed himself to the Magi with a star at its rising. Upon arriving in Jerusalem, he revealed himself once again through the fulfillment of Scripture. And the Scriptures are always about God revealing. God constantly reveals to us Genesis 1.1, God is revealing something to us. The prophets have God revealing something to us. God reveals himself to us. The second thing is this, that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. Ultimately, God reveals himself most clearly in Jesus. That's all the Old Testament really is, really. It's saying, hey, someone's coming, someone's coming, someone's coming. God's about to reveal himself in some fantastic way. In the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of that revelation in Jesus Christ. There's no one else. Nothing else left to fulfill. So when you know, one group tells you there's another document written that completes it, no. When one group tells you, you know, there's, there's more to the revelation, no. When, when one group says we have this leader and he has spoke and revealed something, no, no, and no. Within Christianity, we see now some churches and even denominations saying we need to be open to other religions and other books because they reveal something about God. No, no, no. Jesus is it. The third thing is this then. Jesus is revealed as our Savior. That's what this story is about. That's what Matthew teaches. That's what Luke teaches. That ultimately, the revelation of Jesus about saving us. And that's what really matters. And that's what Christmas is about. It's not just that a baby has come and we celebrate the birth of a baby. I know we love to celebrate births of babies. I get it. But that's not what this is about. It's not just about gifts, though. Exchanging gifts are fine. It is about a reason to celebrate, a reason to glorify, a Savior has come. You see, here's the thing. The reason all this matters is this. From the moment we sinned, God had a way to save us. 
And he told us that. From the moment we sinned, God began to tell us, reveal to us, he was going to save us. That way is Jesus. That is the only way. And so it all comes down to this at Christmas and every other time of the year. Do you have faith in Jesus? I began the message by saying the birth of Jesus is a reminder that God has always revealed to us who he is, what he does. Who he is is the loving father that has sent the son of God to save us from our sin. That Jesus, fully God, fully man, has come that you and I might know him. And what you and I must do is the same thing that the Magi did. We must come and bow before him and proclaim him the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. Have you, in your life, come to trust Jesus to be your Savior? If not, Christmas is a wonderful time to do it, to celebrate the birth of Jesus as the Savior of your life. And right now, you could simply give your life to him and trust him. And if you want to do that and but want to talk to someone in just a moment, an invitation will be standing here. And you can come and talk to one of us about giving your life to Christ. And ladies, if you would prefer to talk to another woman, we'll have a woman here as well. For all of you who are followers, have you spent time in the middle of this busy Christmas season to truly worship him, to thank him, and to praise him for being Savior? You can do that. Right now, you should. Some of you struggle with the whole concept of Christmas, and I get that. It can be confusing at times, and there's a lot of things that we just kind of add to it. But you need to have confidence that the story of the birth of Jesus is true. That the birth of Jesus is a time for you to celebrate. You need to make that celebration a part of your life. And for many of you, there's the opportunity going to come this Christmas season for you to share Christ with someone. Because rarely are people as open to hearing about Jesus as at Christmas. So who are you going to tell about Jesus? You know, it's hard to always know what we should do. But I want to make sure of this. That when you leave this place today, You have followed the example of the Magi. You have come to worship the one who is the king of all kings, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And Father, what a beautiful passage and story this is. That you have shared this with us. That you have shared with us that you reveal things to us. You make them known. We can know you. Even in the midst of all of our sin, we can know you. And we can know you in and through Jesus. So it is my prayer that we would today come to you through Christ. That those who have never trusted Jesus would give their life to him. And that those of us who have would come to celebrate and to worship and to glorify you because of Jesus. You sent him into this world to sinful people like us to save us. So Father, let us trust him and give you the glory and honor in his name. Amen and amen. Would you stand? We'll be here. You come.